On August 17, 2014, the body of 15-year-old Tina Fontaine was pulled from the Red River in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. But this wasn't the first and only tragedy in Tina's life. Tonight, we're going to back up and tell Tina's whole story. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. All right, tonight's case is another case of a murdered Indigenous woman from Canada. It's been a pretty big topic in the true crime groups I'm in on Facebook. We're talking a lot about the Canadian issues with missing and murdered Indigenous women. And the conversation eventually turns to pointing out that it's not any different in the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, when we're talking about historical treatment of Indigenous populations. So what I decided to do here is acknowledge this with a little bit of a two-parter. This week, I'm going to talk about Tina Fontaine, who was murdered in Canada. Then next week, I'm going to talk about Savannah LaFontaine Greywind, who was murdered here in the U.S. Each of these episodes is a self-contained episode of a single case. So you don't have to listen to both to know what's going on. But for those who are listening to both, we are going to also talk about the aftermath of each case and maybe see some parallels, maybe some dissimilarities between how the two countries handled it. This episode was researched by Jess and Haley researched Savannah's case that you will hear next week. So let's get started with tonight's story about Tina Fontaine. She was born January 1st, 1999 in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Her mother was just 17 years old when she was born, and her father was 28. And she wasn't their first child. So let's back up and talk about Tina's parents for a bit. This is something else that comes up in online discussions, and I know we talked about it online after I covered the Jack family. In that case, Doreen Jack had grown up in an abusive home, and she had an abusive marriage. So to dial it back a generation to Doreen's parents, whose father abused her and mother abandoned her, they also likely had abusive upbringings in the residential schools, and that contributed to how they treated their family. This is a cycle, and it's a cycle of violence. It leads to, or it can lead to, generations of dysfunctional relationships if someone doesn't break the cycle. I didn't discuss this in the Jack family episode, and that was my oversight. So we're going to do it here for a minute. Valentina Duck, Tina's mother, was on the radar of Child and Family Services since she was younger than six years old. And it was due to instability and neglect that she was experiencing in her home. In part, this was due to her mother having a string of violent relationships. So here we are. We're in the cycle already. In 1992, when Valentina was 10, She was removed from her mother permanently and placed in foster care. Within the next two years, she was running away, drinking, and even doing drugs. We are talking 
10 to 12 years old. At the age of 12, she met Tina's father, Eugene Fontaine, and he also had a troubled childhood. He went to a residential school until the age of 12. Again, the Jack family episode, the Betty Osborne episode, you already know what these residential schools were like. He was a very troubled 12-year-old when he left school. His mother couldn't cope with him and sent him to his aunt Thelma and uncle Joseph Favell's house. They were foster parents specifically for First Nations children in the Seguin First Nation area of Manitoba. As always, blanket apology if I mispronounced that. I did do my best. This area is an hour and a half northeast of Winnipeg. Thelma and Joseph were experienced foster parents. They were First Nations, and they lived in the community with strong ties to Indigenous culture. They were a dream foster placement for First Nations children, and they took in a lot of troubled teens. I don't know their religious beliefs, but they deserve whatever the equivalent of sainthood is within their belief system. Now, Eugene didn't magically resolve all of his trauma at Aunt Thelma's, and he eventually developed a serious drinking problem. He also had a violent temper. At the age of 23, he was living on the streets when he met Valentina. And you heard me. He was 23 years old when he met a 12-year-old. Child and Family Services received a phone call about this, Not just that a 12-year-old in their care was with a 23-year-old boyfriend, but that Eugene was sexually exploiting Valentina. There is a mention of him, quote, profiting from this, which I have to take to mean he was trafficking her. The person who made this call would likely know what was going on because it was Eugene's own mother concerned for this young girl. Nothing appears to have been done. Valentina gave birth in 1996 to her first baby. She was 14 when she had become pregnant with him. He was immediately taken from her custody and placed into the care system. In 1999, Tina was born. This time, Eugene and Valentina were given the opportunity to keep custody. They were ordered to take parenting classes. And then in 2000, they had a second daughter who they were also allowed to keep custody of. In the late 2000, they pop up on Child and Family Services radar. The couple had left Tina, not quite two, and her four-month-old sister, Sarah, with Valentina's mother. And they left with no indication of when they would be back. When they didn't return for a while and Valentina's mother could not take care of them anymore, she called CFS and the children were taken into their custody. Eugene and Valentina made contact with CFS and got the girls back. I think they were only in care for about something like four or five days So it was a few nights, but that's still difficult to have kids staying a few nights in a stranger's home. Within a year of that, they were taken again after police were called on the family 
a neighbor saw the couple leaving a party with both girls, and both of the parents were highly intoxicated. Eugene complied with CFS's requirement that he get treatment for his addiction and take parenting classes, so he was able to regain custody of them in a couple of months. So it was November 2001. Valentina, however, had split with Eugene while the girls were in care, and she was largely out of the picture. Two months after the girls were returned to Eugene, CFS stopped monitoring them. And looking back, this looks a little sloppy at best. CFS had documentation that Eugene had previously sexually exploited a 12-year-old who he then went on to have children with. They knew this happened. It was reported to them. Yet they still gave two young girls back to him with no ongoing monitoring. Anyway, for the next two years, the girls lived with their father, and it wasn't a very stable life. They moved between Winnipeg and Seguin First Nation multiple times. Eugene started drinking again, though it's not clear he ever stopped even after treatment. And then in late 2004, he was diagnosed with cancer. He decided to give his great aunt and uncle, Thelma and Joseph, the same ones who took him in, custody of his kids. It was probably a combination of factors, his unstable living environment, his cancer treatments, his alcohol use, all of these things contributed to this decision. And it was, at the time, his decision. This was a private custody agreement. The children had not been formally removed from his care, though it is possible they may have been on the path to that because CFS was back in the picture at this point, but this was voluntary. So I'm going to interrupt myself for a minute here because in researching this case, I came across some comments online I know not to read the comments section, but I did. And now I have something to say. Some people out there seem to believe that Indigenous communities developed higher than average addiction rates in some sort of vacuum, that this is some flaw of character. And I know if you're listening to the show, you're the choir that I'm preaching to right now, but I still have to say this. Again, I'm pretty sure I've said it before. This is not an addiction issue. This is a trauma and oppression issue that has led to addiction. That trauma is passed down the generations. Don't look at Valentina as an addict who left her kids with an alcoholic who sexually exploited her. Look at her as the 12-year-old child who was sexually exploited. A situation that was reported but not intervened on. When she had a child, while still being a child herself, what happened? They took him away. I don't know the whole story with that. And you know what? Maybe that was the best choice. But that doesn't lessen the trauma to Valentina. That's just one example of the trauma happening here that is leading to addiction Heal the trauma and watch the addiction rates plummet. 
All right, let's get back on track. With Tina's life being marked by instability from birth to around the age of five, Tina was described as having some behavioral issues that alarmed Thelma. She was very hyper. And Thelma requested that Tina be evaluated for fetal alcohol syndrome in 2005. I like the diagnostic term fetal alcohol spectrum because it is a spectrum. There are children who have fetal alcohol syndrome, and that indicates being more severely and obviously affected. But children who were mildly affected by their mother's alcohol use during pregnancy can still have symptoms. It appears the request for evaluation was never done, and that's a real shame because Tina may have had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or she may have had ADHD, or she may have just been struggling with the trauma of repeated separations from her parents. Any or all of these could have been factors in her behavior, and there are different treatment options available for all three if she had an appropriate evaluation done. But we do have a reality check here. They were living in a fairly remote area. Even if she had a diagnosis and given access to therapies to help, Thelma had no way to get her an hour and a half to Winnipeg for these treatments. So Thelma and Tina were pretty much stuck without access to these services. There was also a brief period of time here when Thelma was concerned Eugene would come and take the girls back. Because he gave custody voluntarily, he could also rescind it. So Thelma started wanting to look into getting them declared actual foster children so she would have more protection. But the social worker had Eugene instead sign a six-month custody agreement. So at least for the immediate future, Thelma didn't have to worry. By the time it expired, Eugene's cancer was in stage three. So he wasn't well enough to take the girls anyway. And things seemed to smooth over because he started coming around more for Sunday dinners. And he was always in contact with the girls, but it became a bit more frequent. Overall, particularly compared to before, they had a fairly stable and quiet life with Thelma and Joseph, both Tina and her sister Sarah. They called Thelma and Joseph grandma and grandpa instead of aunt and uncle. Tina loved school. She struggled with some of the fundamentals early on. She didn't like to speak up in class, so she did repeat a grade, which really helped. And by fourth grade, she was completely caught up. So I think, again, this wasn't necessarily a Tina issue, but a developmental birth to age five was unstable issue. So things seemed pretty okay here until 2011 when Tina was 12 years old. Her stable world was shaken. Eugene's cancer had advanced, and it looked like the Fontaine sisters would have to deal with his death sooner or later, and it ended up being sooner. Eugene, then 41, was out with some friends on a three-day bender, and things escalated. They started fighting over money. The fight got so bad that two of the men beat Eugene, stomping on his head. 
They then tied him up and threw him in a shed. He died of those head injuries before he was found. The men eventually pleaded guilty to manslaughter and sentenced to nine years each. Eugene's brutal death obviously very deeply affected Tina. I have talked to families of murder victims, obviously, and pretty much all of them have told me that the violence of their loved one's death complicated their grief. When they compare it to the grief they would feel when someone died from an illness, this seemed just more layered, more deepened. There was just this extra pain there, a pain that I suspect Tina felt, and she wouldn't have felt had her father died from the cancer. Tina was given free access to counseling in the aftermath, which is a wonderful service that she couldn't use because the only options were in a town an hour away, and she had no way of getting there. Another complication arose when Valentina contacted the girls on the day of their father's funeral. She had heard he died and wanted to reach out. She wanted back into their lives, which isn't a bad thing, but it can leave a 12-year-old girl who is already in pain feel a lot of complicated and maybe even contradictory emotions. This was the first contact in a number of years, and it was pretty full-on, with regular phone calls pretty much daily for two months, and then they stopped. Valentina's phone had been disconnected. Even with all of this, Tina initially was hanging in there. She was excelling in school. The school started her in a transition program that got her caught up and she was promoted to the grade she should have been in had she not been held back. That's how well she was doing now. But as this murder case with the killers of her father slowly making its way through the legal system, Tina was eventually given the opportunity to write a victim impact statement. And she really, 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 really struggled emotionally with this task, with sitting down and taking all that stuff she was feeling and writing it down. I don't know if anyone listening has ever had to do that before, but I can only imagine how difficult this was. Thelma asked victim services for some help. She wanted Tina to be able to write her statement, but she knew she needed more support because of how distressed she was. However, the Staff did not work with children, and so they told Thelma they really couldn't help her. And this was it. In the aftermath of this, Tina spiraled. And what kid, what person, what adult wouldn't? When she started school in the fall of 2013 for the 2013-14 school year, her grades and attendance were dismal. After working so hard to catch up, Tina was now 14, She started asking Thelma if she could go visit her mother down in Winnipeg. Thelma was hesitant to agree because there is a bit of a disconnect here. Culturally, Thelma and Joseph were seen as the guardians of Tina and her sister Sarah after their father's death. 
This guardianship was called a customary care agreement. Legally, however, on the government side, Valentina, no matter how absent she had been, still had all her legal rights as a parent. And this disconnect between legal custody and customary custody has been a problem in other cases. And this made Thelma a little nervous to send the girls to see Valentina because she didn't really know what kind of protections she had to get the girls back. It was after Eugene's death that no one really thought, even on the government, on CFS's side, to do anything to make this legal, that Thelma and Joseph would have official in the eyes of the government guardianship of the girls. But there was an effort to respect this customary custody when Tina decided she wasn't going to wait on Thelma's permission to see her mother, and she ran away in November 2013. Thelma reported her missing and suspected, rightly, that Tina had run to her mother's house. So the RCMP went right to Valentina's and picked Tina up. She spent a night or two in a youth shelter until Thelma and Joseph could arrange transportation to go get her from Winnipeg. While she was in the shelter and asked, how did you get here? Tina said she got to Winnipeg by taking a ride with a 25-year-old man. And if you remember, she's 14. In January 2014, shortly after Tina turned 15, Valentina officially requested the girls come visit her. According to Thelma, she called the girls' caseworker to ask if this was okay, and they said yes, but the department later denied that this conversation took place. Regardless, the girls did visit their mother, and it was an unremarkable visit from what Thelma could tell. However, Tina's behavior at home just kept getting worse. She was suspended from school at least twice— for being under the influence of weed. She was largely given incompletes on her grade card simply because she didn't show up enough. In April, Thelma acknowledged she was in over her head with Tina. She wasn't able to keep her safe. There was the drug use and the running away and the skipping school, and then she found out Tina was talking to adult men online making plans to meet up with them in Winnipeg. Thelma even reported one of these men to the RCMP. I mean, Tina's only 15. And if you're wondering where I'm getting all of this detailed information from Tina's CFS file, which you would assume was private, the Advocate for Children and Youth Act did a review of her case after her death, and it was very recently made available. And in this report, we can see that there was a lot of action being taken from April to June, including trying to get Tina into local counseling sessions. But the therapist traveled to this remote area limited times during the week. It's not like he or she had a practice there. So these times that they had open were very limited, and they weren't times Tina could get there. But according to Thelma, Tina did seem to be getting better to some degree after the court proceedings for her father's killers really looked like they were wrapping up. 
That took a huge weight off of things. She attended school and was putting in some effort. Things weren't amazing, but Tina seemed to be trying. So when Tina and her sister wanted to go see Valentina in Winnipeg again, Thelma agreed. Now, this huge review of her case file does contradict this. They pulled her school records. It indicates that she actually wasn't attending school at all at this point. But I wonder if maybe Thelma wasn't aware of how often Tina was not in class. That can happen as well. There's also a small discrepancy in that Thelma said that Tina's sister did not go to Winnipeg on this visit. Other sources say that she did go but went home early. It was supposed to be like a week-long visit, and Sarah just did not want to stay that long. So she went home early. Tina opted not to come home at all. The timeline of when Tina was in Winnipeg has been compiled through two major sources we're going to go through. The first is that huge report I've already referenced. But there's also a really great timeline on the CBC website. It was posted on February 20th, 2018. I've tried to blend the two sources together to get a clearer picture of what was happening. We'll start with July 10th, 2014. Tina did not come home from that visit, and she's now in Winnipeg. Thelma called CFS in Winnipeg to discuss some concerns she had. Someone saying he was Tina's boyfriend Facebook messaged Thelma and said Tina was using crack cocaine with her mother, that Tina was being sexually exploited, just that things were off the rails in Winnipeg and Tina needed help. Thelma was calling because she wanted CFS to intervene and to find Tina, but she didn't want them to bring her home. She wanted her to be placed into a foster home. Living with her mother, Valentina, was off the table because while Valentina had a claim for custody, she had two younger children and they were both in foster care. So her caseworker wouldn't have then placed Tina with her. CFS contacted Valentina and left a message asking her about these concerns with Tina. There was some back and forth between agencies about who was actually responsible for Tina here because there were multiple social workers and agencies with each person and each family and each location. But finally, someone went to Valentina's when they didn't hear back from her to look for Tina, and they learned Valentina had been evicted. Tina was officially missing at this point. So a missing persons report was filed. And Tina was not with Valentina, wherever Valentina was. Through text messaging, Tina did contact her sister Sarah here and there. At one point, she texted Sarah a picture with a black eye and said Valentina was the one who hit her. It doesn't seem from any of what I've seen that Tina and Valentina stayed together very long in Winnipeg. But if she's not with Valentina, where is she? And the answer is her 18-year-old boyfriend, Cody Mason. She met Cody in Winnipeg, and they didn't know each other pretty much at all when they decided they were going to live together, except Cody lived with his father, so he let Tina move in with them. That lasted about two weeks before they left the father's home, whether they were kicked out or decided to leave. 
I don't know, but they had nowhere to go. They didn't have a second place that was an option. So they were essentially homeless, living on the streets at this point. While hanging out on the streets, a 52-year-old man named Raymond Cormier was riding his bicycle past them. They asked him if he knew where they could stay, and he showed them a house that they could crash at, and all three of them stayed there for a few weeks. Raymond also said that Tina and Cody were dealing drugs at the time. So while they're at this house, all three of them are doing drugs. Tina and Cody knew Raymond by the name Sebastian, but we're going to call him Raymond for clarity. That's what's in all the reporting. On July 14th, four days after Thelma's call and Tina is officially reported missing, Tina was seen outside a Winnipeg apartment. She was with two men who are believed to be Cody and Raymond based on ages. It was about 5 p.m., and she asked this witness for a cigarette and started talking to him. She mentioned how the three were essentially couch surfing, and she just dropped it into the conversation that they also sold drugs as their main source of income. This man was interested in buying, so he gave Tina his phone number to arrange a purchase. Around 10 p.m. that same night, Tina called him and asked him if she could go stay with him, and he said no. Three days later, Tina was finally found by police, but it wasn't a result of the missing persons information. The Winnipeg police got a call that a young woman was being dragged down the street by her arm. They responded to the call and found that both Tina and this man were very intoxicated. They were taken in for public intoxication. Tina, who was a minor, went to a juvenile detox center at a hospital, and the man, who was 18, went to an adult center. They don't name the man in the CFS report, but process elimination seems to be likely Cody because Tina identified him as her boyfriend and Cody was also 18 at the time, which is how this young man was presented in the report. So my guess is it's Cody. When Thelma, Valentina, and CFS were all contacted about Tina turning up in detox, we have a bunch more back and forth of trying to decide who had authority to care for Tina and which agency was in charge. Thelma, though, was taking a big step back. Thelma's previous attempts to keep Tina home and safe had failed. She thought Tina would have more resources in a foster home. So the custody agreement was closed out on July 17th, and Thelma officially no longer had custody. And Tina was now in CFS custody. Except they had no placement for her. They ended up putting her in a motel room, which she left the next day. Literally, one day in CFS custody, and she was missing again. They didn't even have time to cancel the first missing persons report, so it stayed open and active. They called Valentina, they called Thelma, they called other relatives just to see if anyone saw Tina and no luck. 
But can you even imagine being Thelma right now? After decades of being a foster parent, she finally says a kid needs more help than she can give them, and she asks the province to take her. I'm sure she was thinking about Sarah, too. Sarah's been through many of these same traumas that Tina's been through. She needs Thelma and Joseph's attention, and it has so far been really focused on her sister. So after all of that, Thelma says, okay, take her into care, get her some help, and a day later, she gets a call that Tina's already missing. And it really just hurts my heart to think about Thelma taking that call. After four days, Tina called her caseworker using Valentina's cell phone, so they apparently reconnected at some point. She said she was fine, and she did agree to meet her worker on July 23rd to discuss placement options. She really wanted to be placed in a house with a family. Her caseworker, though, couldn't find an open placement for a teenage girl. What she could find was a temporary youth shelter. And Tina agreed to stay put in this placement while they tried to find something with more permanency. It was at this point that the missing persons report was officially canceled. While the agency started looking for specialized foster care for Tina, she did stay in the shelter for three days before she left, and they reported her missing. She showed up the next day for an hour and left again, so they didn't cancel the missing persons report. Then she showed up the day after, and then they did cancel the report because she stayed put for a few more days before she left again on July 30th. She left a lot of stuff behind, and when she didn't come back for it, they reported her missing again on July 31st. Two days later, she showed back up at the shelter. And here's some sad reality for all of us. Because of the high demand in a homeless shelter for teens, a homeless shelter for teens has a high demand, they can only hold beds for two days for missing residents. After that, they release the spot, and it is always immediately filled. Tina told the intake or social worker or whoever that she had an uncle she could stay with, and the shelter told her that she can check back in later because if someone else doesn't show up for their bed, she can stay there. They did keep the missing persons report open at this point, but she wasn't actively being looked for, at least by police. Her caseworker was trying to find her. And over the early days of August, Tina occasionally checked in. She would call the social worker or she would call the shelter asking if she could stay for the night. But no one actually saw her, and she never showed up at the shelter even when they told her, sure, come in, we have a place for you, or told her, we don't have a place, but we'll help you find one. She just wouldn't show up. In this whole time she was in Winnipeg, which was about five weeks total, she was in sporadic contact with local extended family members. She wasn't ever off the grid entirely. She would get rides from people or she'd spend a weekend on their couch. One time she was cold, so she went to her aunt's house. Her aunt gave her a sweater and a hug, and Tina just left again. On August 6th, 
Tina's boyfriend, Cody, flew to his home city of St. Teresa Point in northern Manitoba, again, a remote community, and Tina was pretty devastated. So that night, Tina met up with Raymond and two of his friends, and they went to one of those places that they kind of regularly crashed at. While there, Raymond traded Tina's bicycle for some weed. This bicycle was one of Tina's few possessions. It was her only way to get around town, and she was furious when she found out. In retaliation, around 10.20 that night, she called 911 from a payphone. She reported a blue truck that had been stolen by Raymond earlier that day. She was trying to get him in trouble. The dispatcher told her this wasn't an emergency and to call the local non-emergency police number. A witness saw her make this phone call. After she hung up, she asked him for a cigarette. She said she didn't have a place to sleep because the person she was staying with was being, quote, inappropriate with her. And this is something she told other people about Raymond as well. This man that she was talking to, though, he lived in a halfway house himself. It's not like he could invite her to stay with him. So she told him that she was instead going to a friend's house. Now we have a gap of August 7th, but at 2.20 in the morning on August 8th, Tina tried to get a bed at the youth shelter. She brought a friend with her, another teenage girl. But Tina gave an alias at the shelter and a fake backstory. She did have some injuries, a swollen lip and some skinned knees. She said she tripped over a skateboard. Her friend couldn't figure out why Tina was giving a fake name, so she pulled a staff member aside and gave them Tina's real name. She also told them that she saw Tina get out of a John's car and that she had been doing weed and cocaine that night. So it seems like this friend was trying to I don't know, wave a big red flag over Tina's head and say, you guys, come help her. CFS was called at the After Hours Intake Agency, which was not staffed by people who were familiar with Tina. So they ran her name. Nothing really showed up. She didn't pop up as a missing child in their database, which was a little odd because she was listed as a missing child with the police. Anyway, the two left the shelter at 3.30 in the morning. Less than two hours later, at 5.15, Tina was a passenger in a car that was pulled over. The driver hadn't used their turn signal. Tina gave a fake name or two until she realized she wasn't actually in trouble. When they ran her actual name of Tina Fontaine, her missing persons report did pop up. They asked her where she was staying. She likely gave them false information but they let her go. It would later come out that the driver of the car was a John. Tina was in his car because he had gotten into an argument with his girlfriend and was out looking for a girl to, quote, hang out with. Those were his words. I want to point out that Tina was not only only 15, she looked younger. She was 5'2", didn't even weigh 80 pounds. She was tiny. People from the shelter in Winnipeg said she looked quite a bit younger than her actual age. So these guys picking her up more likely thought she was 12 or 13. And all of this makes me want to puke. 
This man had his car impounded because he was drunk and he was driving on a suspended license. Let's add that to his charming attributes. None of the officers asked Tina at that time if she was being exploited by that man in that car. They just confirmed she was alive and let her leave. So fast forward a few more hours to 10 a.m. Tina was found unconscious in an alley near the University of Winnipeg. Security couldn't wake her up, so the paramedics were called. She regained consciousness there and was transported to the hospital. She was confused, but she told them that she had used drugs and alcohol that day. And that's something else about this. Tina, for the most part, told the people at the shelter, at the detox, at the hospital, all these places, about the substances she was using. She left out little things and maybe wasn't as specific as she should have been, but she didn't lie and just say something like, oh, it's a little bit of alcohol. She did tell them when she took drugs. The doctor in this case told Tina that she was worried that Tina had been sexually assaulted or exploited or both. Tina denied that. The doctor was pretty sure she was lying and asked if Tina would consent to a sexual assault evidence collection exam, aka a rape kit, and Tina said no. They had no cause to hold her in the hospital once she was medically cleared, so the hospital social worker jumped in and found her a hotel room and promised that if Tina would stay put and not run off or wander off, she would make sure Tina got a new bike because Tina was really focused on that, that Sebastian slash Raymond had stolen her bicycle. She agreed she would stay. She wasn't a prisoner. She could come and go if she checked in with her social worker. So she checked in, she went out to hang out with friends, and then she never came back, ever. It was August 17th, 2014, nine days later, that Tina's body was found in the Red River. A fisherman reported seeing what looked to him like a body under a blanket. Tina was found inside a duvet cover with 12 kilograms or 26 pounds of rocks weighing her down. And Tina had been there a while. It took four hours before they were sure of the biological sex of the body. They did end up identifying Tina based on a tattoo that was still visible and intact. These rocks were not enough to weigh her down. Not to be too grim here, but an expert later testified that for a body to stay weighed down against all the bloating and such, the weights have to be one half the weight of the body. So whoever did this really needed nearly double the weight they used. But they think it's possible her body was submerged for an extended period, not because of the weights, but because the duvet cover got caught on something. A large boat passed through the area and the body was freed. That's the theory here. As far as examining where Tina's body went into the river, that was difficult. They had no idea. There is a lot of green space along this river near where Tina was found. So plenty of secluded spaces, someone could have done this. The best estimate here was that she was in the water for three to seven days. On autopsy, the cause of death 
wasn't able to be determined. There were no obvious injuries like stab wounds or a bullet. She could have been strangled. She could have been smothered. But she also could have drowned. They didn't find evidence of drowning, but they didn't find anything that would necessarily have precluded drowning being part of this. They just didn't know. She did test positive for alcohol and THC. Previous drug tests, like when she was in detox, found that she used a number of other harder drugs. So it kind of surprised me a little that this is all that showed up. One drug that she took that Raymond supplied her was an anti-seizure medication. It doesn't make you high on its own, but if you take it with other drugs, it enhances the high. So it's possible she had taken it, but a low enough level that it didn't show up in the talk screen, but it was a high enough level that it enhanced whatever high she was chasing. The investigation got its big break about a month after Tina's body was found. An inmate named Ernest DeWolf at the Milner Ridge Correctional Facility came forward. He claimed Raymond boasted about having had a sexual relationship with Tina. Remember, she was 15. He was 52. He also told Ernest that he had, quote, straightened her out after she had reported him for stealing that truck. So police went to question Raymond on October 1st, and he ran. They managed to catch him and arrest him. At the station, he voluntarily spoke with officers. He said he was interested in Tina, but that she was too young, so he didn't do anything about it. The interrogation was videotaped, and on this tape, he refers to not wanting to be a, quote, skinner, which is a new one for me. It's apparently prison slang for pedophiles. He did tell police that they argued about the bicycle situation, how he traded it for drugs, but he denied killing her, and then he said, someone else did it. And there's some reference to him seeing some guy following her. The police asked him, what in his mind's eye does he see the killer of Tina looking like? And Raymond answered Robert Plant, you know, the guy from Led Zeppelin, which actually happens to be what Raymond looks like. So not quite sure what to do with that. Raymond, to me, in watching what footage is available online of this interrogation, he looks out of it during the questioning. About an hour in, he stops cooperating. He was lying down on the floor at one point and fell asleep. And this is as the police are coming in and out of the room. You could read this as him being purposefully uncooperative. But I think he may be coming down from being high, and he honestly cannot cooperate. Because I'm going to be honest, he seemed pretty gone from the beginning. Even when he was cooperating, he had his head against the wall. He was mumbling so much that I couldn't understand him several times. He was just not in good shape. The CBC did an interview with him in March 2019, and he's like a completely different person. He's clear, he's concise, you can understand what he's saying, he's sitting up completely. So I think taking these two videos side by side, I really think drugs were at the root of the issue with that police interrogation, 
and I can't even imagine how frustrating that is for investigators to have this block, this wall that drugs build in someone's brain, and that wall is something they just can't get past. That has to be so frustrating. The RCMP couldn't hold Raymond for Tina's murder, but he did have outstanding warrants that they could hold him on. They just didn't have the evidence they needed. They had no DNA. They had no hairs. They had no witnesses. They didn't even have circumstantial evidence, let alone forensics. But because of these other charges, he was in custody for eight months. Meanwhile, about six weeks after Tina called 911 about that stolen truck, it was recovered. Police thought that the truck may have been the murder scene or the mode of transportation used to get Tina's body to and from the water because Raymond didn't have a car that he actually owned. And it looked like this might be the break they needed, but it didn't turn out that way. Three fingerprints were recovered. They didn't match Tina or Raymond. There was a palm print recovered. It didn't match Raymond, but they had never taken Tina's palm prints, so they didn't know if it would have matched her. There was blood in the truck, but apparently that wasn't helpful either. It didn't link Raymond or Tina to the truck. So while they had Raymond locked up for these eight months, they tried to build a case against him. He was eventually released in July 2015 when they had no cause to hold him any longer. The RCMP were nice enough to arrange a transitional living apartment for him, rent-free. And of course, they wiretapped it and put him under surveillance. The recordings from the six months he was under investigation and wiretapped, they're not great. The quality isn't where you would want it. But before I get into the incriminating things he said, I want to say he did deny killing Tina a few times on these tapes as well. Okay, so the incriminating things. One time he told someone in the apartment not to overdose or their body would be wrapped in a carpet and thrown in the river, which is similar to what happened to Tina. He also said that he had sex with Tina, who was 15 at the time, and under Canada's age of consent. He said something about Tina finding a knife and getting angry and how by sunset she died, but it's not clear how connected those phrases are because it's not just one cohesive statement or clear sentence. Some of the words are inaudible. So that one's kind of just something's there, but I don't know what. He also said that the police would arrest him if they had DNA, and then he said something about a shore and throwing someone in. Again, that's hard to follow, hard to understand. There was a lot of mumbling and talking to himself about a bunch of weird things. The most incriminating thing he said, so I'll give you the bombshell, he said, Tina got killed because we, then he corrected to I, found out she was 15. This goes in line with some other things. He said he claimed he thought Tina was of age or she told him she was, which I don't really believe that. But anyway, in this 
conversation, he still doesn't say, I killed her. He uses that passive distancing voice, she got killed. So still not quite a confession. But Manitoba decided this was enough, or it was as much as they were ever going to have. So Raymond was arrested in early December 1995, 18 months after Tina's murder. It took a little over a year for the case to go to trial in January 2016 when Raymond was 55 years old. I know we sometimes lament about juries expecting CSI-level forensics in every case and how that's not possible, but I want to emphasize that there is no forensics in this case. Not a single hair from Raymond was found on Tina or the duvet. There was no touch DNA. There were no skin cells where they shouldn't be. There was no little smear of blood. There was none of this. And now the water may have destroyed whatever was there, but when they recovered Tina's body, they had nothing. The Crown produced three witnesses who said Raymond had the same duvet cover, and it actually wasn't a very popular one. Investigators tracked it down It was sold in a Costco in Winnipeg, the only place you could get it. They only sold about 100 of them, but it sounds like they may have donated any overstock. But I don't know. Some people have a memory for these things, but I've slept at people's houses, and I'd be hard-pressed to recognize their blankets two and a half years down the road. This case is a motive-means-opportunity circumstantial case. Everything we've talked about was testified to, but not a whole lot more. There were no witnesses to the murder. Ernest DeWolf testified about Raymond's supposed confession. He also said he recognized that duvet cover and that Raymond bragged about having sex with Tina. He talked about a verbal altercation between Tina and Raymond, which Raymond supposedly told him about, where Tina told Raymond he was being creepy and she was going to tell the police about the stolen truck. But the defense attacked Ernest's credibility. Ernest and Raymond met in jail, in prison, in 2011, and that's how they became friends. They kept in touch afterwards. Usually if Ernest was hanging out with Raymond, it was to do drugs. Obviously, Ernest denied that he was lying. The defense said the motive here was that Raymond ratted Ernest out to his parole officer over some of this drug use. And that's why Ernest was testifying. It was retaliation. They basically just flat out accused him of perjuring himself. The other evidence involved those tapes from the sting that we talked about. They had transcripts printed since the quality is so iffy. I've already told you the most compelling clips. That's what they had. The defense didn't present evidence. There was really no need for experts because there wasn't any forensic evidence to dispute. Even the cause of death was unknown. You couldn't even call a rebuttal medical examiner to address that. The tape recordings didn't hold any massive confession, so it wasn't like Raymond needed to explain them. And there was no alibi to produce because the Crown didn't have a date of death. There was just no defense to present. The defense cross-examined witnesses and moved to closing statements. The defense spelled out how thin the evidence was. This was a three-week trial, but there wasn't a whole lot to the case. 
even still, the jury did their job. They deliberated for 13 hours. They looked over everything they could. And in the end, they found Raymond Cormier not guilty of killing Tina. Tina's family, obviously, they gasped. They cried. This was devastating. Thelma collapsed outside of the courtroom. She had to be helped out of the building. Family, friends, activists, they've all called for this case to be reinvestigated because if not Raymond, then who? And if it was Raymond, how did he get away with it? Why wasn't there enough to convict him? Tina didn't wrap herself in a duvet cover full of rocks and jump into the river. Someone put her there. I don't see how the jury could have found Raymond guilty. There really wasn't a lot here. There was a lot of reasonable doubt when there was nothing physical or circumstantial linking Raymond to her point of death. He was a dicey character. He was battling some very serious demons. He was mad at Tina. That's all we have. And Tina was the picture of a vulnerable child. She was alone. She was tiny. She was battling substance abuse. And she was on the streets. That's the scary thing here is that pretty much anyone could have done this. It may be someone she never met before that night. And so there would be no link to her otherwise. This wouldn't be the end of the tragedy for the Fontaine family. Tina and Sarah's cousin Janine was murdered in 2017 when three men went to her house to see her boyfriend, who was a drug dealer. He owed one of the men money. Her brother Vincent let them into the house assuming they were friends, and they decided to rob Janine when they saw her boyfriend wasn't there. Instead of just robbing her, they shot her in the back of the head. One of the men started throwing trash onto the stove and turning the stove on. Her brother was still there, so he said, what's going on? And the man pointed a gun at him, so he took off running. By the time the police got there, Janine was still alive, but barely. She died the next day in the hospital. There was quite a bit of fire damage to the home. The man who pulled the trigger pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to life. The other two pleaded not guilty to manslaughter, but they were found guilty at trial. One of them was sentenced to 15 years in the death. He was already serving two life sentences for other murders. So he's looking at 40 years before he can get out. The last defendant is still waiting for a sentence. He pleaded for leniency because one pulled the trigger. The other guy is the one who brought the gun. So he's saying he's less culpable because it wasn't his gun and he didn't pull the trigger. But he's the one whose drug debt it was. He was the one collecting. He took his friends along for enforcement or backup or whatever. So he set this in motion. We'll see if the court agrees with me that he should be just as culpable as the guy who brought the gun. This is the Canadian system. In the U.S., all three would have equal culpability as part of this botched robbery. Even the two who didn't pull the trigger would still be up for that life sentence. But let's get back to Tina's case. Tina's murder and the acquittal of Ray Cormier is one of the cases that put the issue of murdered Indigenous women and girls into the spotlight and the plight of kids like Tina in the foster care system. I've already mentioned the report done on her history and care. That was made public in March 2019. The National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered First Nations Women was held after this starting in 2016. 
Tina's murder was one of the ones that helped push this forward. What's unique about this inquiry is that the government of Canada conducted it, but they had active input from the communities affected. It wasn't just the government coming in and telling the Indigenous people what their story's supposed to be. This report was also made public in 2019. So obviously that's why I'm covering Tina's story now, because we have the information needed to do so. Here are some startling statistics. Indigenous Canadians are about 4% of the population. 10% of women reported missing are Indigenous, and 21% of female homicide victims are Indigenous. Yet, Indigenous Canadians are only 4% of the population. As is expected and is fairly universal across populations, about half of the murders were committed by a relative or intimate partner. But Indigenous women are still 1.4 times more likely to be killed by a stranger than other Canadians. But there's another initiative that came from this that is more directly attached to Tina's case, and that's a volunteer movement called Drag the Red. The Red River, where Tina was found, has been a place where other murdered people have been dumped. Tina is not the only one found there. She's not even the only teenage girl found there. So these volunteers go down to the river and actively search for signs of other missing people who might be in there. This movement was sparked when a Manitoba woman named Bernadette Smith heard about Tina being found. She did what a lot of us do when we just kind of need to vent. She got on social media. Her first post was, wake up Winnipeg and drag the river. She later posted, how many other people have been murdered and put in there? And really, these two posts got others talking about it. And soon enough, there's a group who is searching the river. Tina's death and the initiatives and reports since then may help save another vulnerable child. It may help systemically, even though it's too late to help Tina. Her case is technically unsolved. They don't even know when or how she died. This is just yet another trauma in their lives. There is literally nothing we can do to fix that. But if this helps Canada do better with the next generation, maybe that's the justice we're going to have to settle for. But I really hope not. I really hope this case is re-examined and solved for Tina's sake and for the sake of her family. 